Well, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Thank you all for uh, coming out. I uh, was telling Randall, I really appreciate Campus Life inviting me to do the last one of these so that I can have the last word instead of having the president do the last one. We kind of reversed roles a little bit. I had decided probably a month ago what I wanted to talk about today, but uh, uh, about a week ago, two weeks ago now, we were in Chicago visiting our kids for one of my granddaughter's birthday, and uh, there was an illustration that the preacher used there that, I, that really struck me, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll kind of reform what I wanted to say today that, so that it would kind of work in that vein. The text this morning is John chapter 6. I think we all know John chapter 6 quite well. It begins with the feeding of the 5,000, uh, this amazing miracle. And, um, you know, there's, there's some discussion about whether Jesus intended the uh, apostles to feed the 5,000 uh, and got just really frustrated and he did it. Uh, but nevertheless, it was this great miracle that he does. But he realized, he sees the hearts of the people there and he knows that they're like, hey, this is a pretty good gig. Maybe we make this guy king. <laughs> And we won't ever have to work again. We'll just have food forever. And uh, he realizes this. And so the word says that he moves away to a mountainside uh, before they have a chance to do that. Of course, the apostles then get in a boat. They start going across Galilee towards Capernaum. And the next vignette in that chapter is another story that we know oh so well, which is Jesus coming to them walking on the water. Uh, and uh, then they get across the other side, and that's where I want us to pick up, pick up the text. So bear with me as I read a little bit here. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Apparently they saw the apostles head over, but they didn't see him head over. And so they came around the lake, and they found him over there. When did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs... But because you ate the loaves and had your fill, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for, uh, for uh, him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. They asked him, what, what must we do? Uh, what, what do we have to do? What, what, what work does God require? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. Now, keep in mind, like yesterday, <laughs> they saw him feed 5,000 people miraculously. So they're not asking for a miracle. They're asking for a sign from God. Like fire coming down from heaven to consume an offering on an altar, or a dove descending from heaven and resting above Jesus' head. They want a sign from heaven. The sign that they would prefer is something that they could eat, <laughs> right? Our, our fathers, God gave our fathers manna. Hey, you suppose you could convince God to produce some manna for us right now? <clears throat> Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who, is, who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. I am the bread of life. These I am statements that Jesus makes in the book of John are amazing. This is the first one you come to. I am the bread of life. So how many of you guys know about uh, Hasbro's The Game of Life? Anybody play life? Huh? You know, they started out with that little thing that you popped because back in 1960, it was like throwing dice was like sinful. <laughs> and so, so they came out with The Game of Life in 1960. Some of us... Uh, remember 1960, some of us do not in this crowd. Uh, it reflected the values of the American suburban subculture at the time. And you entered the game in infancy. You got to do all the things in life. You could take out a mortgage. You could pay for insurance. You could go to college. You could buy a house. And you did different things in the game of life, and you got money. And what happens at the end of the game? You what? You die, <laughs> and whoever has the most money, what? Wins. What amazing game. The game of life. Hasbro's game of life. Well, there was a lot of criticism of that game as we progressed from the 60s to 70s, 80s. We get into the 2000s. People are like, you know, this is, not, this is not a real good, accurate representation of the world we live in now. And so in 2007, Hasbro decided to completely revamp the game. And the person they put in charge of that was a lady named Jill Lepore. Now this is what Jill Lepore wrote in the New Yorker in 2007. The redesign team always had a hard time addressing the fundamental criticism of the game. The only way to reward a player for virtuous acts was with money. Save an endangered species, collect 200,000. Solution to pollution, collect 250,000. Open a health food chain, collect 100,000. So they, know, they knew they had to redesign it. So the company's overhaul of the Game of Life, now called the Game of Life Twists and Turns, was almost existential. Instead of putting players in a fixed path, infancy to death, it provided multiple ways to start the life. It start out in life, but nowhere to finish life. And this is what Lepore said when asked about that choice. She said, this is actually the game's selling point. It has no goal because life itself is aimless. The popularity of the game is because it has no goal and it reflects the aimlessness of life. Now this is not a new concept, is it, friends? Who said vanity, vanity, all is vanity? A striving after the wind. Solomon recognized that life was empty, life was aimless, life was pointless that all of the things that we put so much value in don't matter. And in those quiet moments when I'm by myself, I recognize that. 
I recognize that for myself. You know, my family jokes that uh, has, has sort of kidded me throughout my life that Kent won't even try anything unless he believes he can be the best at it. I'm incredibly goal-oriented. Goals mean a lot to me. I have spent my life achieving things. And I, I can confess, and it's not pretty, but sometimes that achievement competes with God for my identity. And I suspect there are things that you hold dearly that also compete with God for your identity. For me, it's achievement, it's goals. For someone else, it might be their family. For someone else, it might be their citizenship as an American or their political affiliation because of that. We all struggle with things that compete for our identity. What Jesus is telling these people in John 6 is your identity. You must find your identity in the one that God sent to earth. I am the bread of life, he says. I am the solution for all of your longings. Wealth, influence, recognition, achievement. He is the answer. He is the only answer for our insatiable hunger and our constant thirst for more and more and more. So, what do we do with that with our work? You know, uh, Randall sent an email out saying, well, I was, I'm going to frame this semester for us. So, on the 17th, new students are going to arrive on our campus. And on the 21st, we start this beautiful, amazing gift that we all get to share in, this transformational process where we help young people find their identity in Jesus, we help them become the people that they will be for the rest of their lives. God, it's beautiful and it is amazing, but how easy is it for us to get lost in these immediate, necessary things that we encounter every day? So as the students come back, I invite you, I invite you to recognize that many of them have little faith. All of them desperately need Jesus. And as we step back into those mentoring relationships with our returning students, and we create new mentoring relationships with our new freshman and transfer students, let us all be thinking front of mind how we can point them to the bread of life so they don't get stuck, trapped, playing the game of life. Let's pray, and I'll be finished. Holy Father, we confess to you that we get distracted. We get distracted by things that are around us. We get distracted by our desires and our own longings. And sometimes those things compete with you for our love, even for our very identity, our sense of self. God, I pray that all of us will be secure in our identity, 
and relationship with Jesus. Father, I pray that you will help us to be a beautiful reflection of Jesus in the lives of our students this year. And God, I pray that you will be glorified and magnified in our work as once again we take up this beautiful responsibility of shaping young people more perfectly in your likeness. Father, we love you and we offer this day, this week, this year to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to LCU's podcast. For more content like this, go to lcu.edu.